Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. Views that I express on this podcast and on my social media accounts are mine alone and do not reflect the views of the Metropolitan Government of Nashville and Davidson County. Now that that's out of the way, let me tell you about a really great show we have for you. Alana Altler agreed to step in and guest host this episode with Councilman John Cooper. She asked him about the soccer stadium deal, business incentives, tax increment financing. Uh, She even throws in a Love Actually reference who benefits from incentive deals and who is left out and what's the impact on school funding. It's a great conversation. I think you'll learn a lot. I certainly did Uh, enjoy the show and please leave a rating or review on the Apple podcast app or your app of choice. Hi everyone. This is Alana Altler, former investigative reporter for WSMV here in Nashville. And today I'm guest hosting a conversation with Councilman John Cooper. Councilman, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Alana, thank you for having me. It's a treat to be here. We'll start off with maybe non-financial questions, just kind of to get our feet wet. And I know personally these days I have a lot of free time on my hands, so I'm trying to read some good books. Do you have any good book recommendations? Uh, Having listened to this podcast before, this is the one question I felt prepared for. Actually, I've just finished listening to a book, an audio book, and it's very interesting. How Paris Became Paris by Joan Dijon, which I guess is a French name. And it's kind of the history of the evolution of a city. And anybody that's interested in a city, I think, would find it incredibly interesting because Paris, in Paris, you've got the creation of public space, parks, sidewalks, bridges, street lighting, postal service, shopping arcades, to-go shopping, consumer branding, fixed-price shopping. Everything was negotiated prior to Parisian shops, uh, chain stores. So really the creation of the modern city, how it happened one step at a time in kind of a magnificent century. But uh, it ends up that the people who really did the best in all of this were this new class of people. They invented a word for it, the financiers. Uh, Real estate developers and financiers ended up benefiting from most of these modern developments in Paris. And the financiers... Uh, and it may be a subject that we'll get back to uh, in the show, were middlemen, by and large, um, using public-private partnerships with the French state to finance projects of which increasingly they took an inappropriate share, and France's debt then ballooned from sort of the 1700s by the time of the French Revolution. And so we always blame aristocrats for the income inequality of France, where you had bread riots and people living in lavish palaces. But it was not just aristocrats. It was the financiers. And most of the really grand houses that remain in Paris from this time were built for the financiers, the people who were, again, fundamentally the middlemen, the public-private partners to the French state as they were executing incessant wars and needed money. Um, which is another caution to America currently. But so it's a two-part story. One is the invention of the modern city and how incredibly productive it was, how much money it made fundamentally. But then a a less productive class of people, the financiers, how they end up stepping in the way of all that money and, in fact, uh, creating a a more unequal state. 
who would be the financiers in modern-day Nashville? Well, uh, I think people look at the development um, community as doing unusually well with our own change to uh, a modern city. Now, there, there was something that they did in France, tax farming, various things, but fundamentally it was a public-private partnership where you let private parties end up arranging the financing. And we have cases now where we have private parties arranging the financing or we are arranging financing for private parties. But it's interesting that a couple of centuries ago, another city, Paris, was having exactly the same problem. So how Paris became Paris by Jean Dijon. Good to know. I will put that on my list. It's a good listen. Yes. Something you didn't know about Metro Council before you joined Metro Council. Uh, well, yeah. Well, there's there's a lot, actually, that I <laughs> didn't know. If you had know, to pick one. <laughs> that I didn't know. Um, there are a couple of interesting just aspects. One is um, that it's very – it's not really a legislative body as much as it's an administrative body. And there are no sessions – Right. So the legislature goes in session and it's out, which allows people to kind of clear the decks and clear the air and focus on initiatives. This is every two weeks. It's amateurs every two weeks. The administrative job of accepting grants and kind of approving, pr- producing the approvals to run things creates this own kind of merciless giant wheel every two weeks. Now, the fact that there are no parties, that it's nonpartisan is also surprisingly interesting because parties actually are a pretty useful way of dividing up discussion and having two points of view. Um, there is a dialectic to parties. That's replaced inevitably by and, and in an administrative state by being administration versus non-administration ends up being the dialectic more and a modern council. And it's a little bit awkward because the administration has all of the information. And so your ability to oppose stuff based on information. So the thing that you really don't know when you're going on to the council is how important your job is, your skill set is being an investigative reporter. Because if you're really going to come up with an alternative, you have to find the information, you have to marshal the arguments, you have to make the, the, the case to create the discussion. Otherwise, you're simply rubber stamping an administrative proposal in an every two-week process. Does it seem kind of like an investigative body at times? Um, No, it does not seem like an investigative body at times, and it probably should be more. Um, uh, uh, But that's that's a much-needed skill set for that. And it's, in a way, it's nobody's fault, particularly government is, I'm fond of saying, government is not really designed to work. It's designed to mitigate controversy. And you have generations of kind of evolved how we do stuff here. So the people who are doing it, the administrative, the civil servants, can have to run the government regardless of who's on the council. And so ultimately, sometimes you feel a little bit humored. Sometimes you appreciate their patience with educating new council people. But fundamentally, there is a lot of inertia in we've done stuff this way. This is how we report it. Why should we do it in any other way? Speaking of past versus present, it seems like a lot of people are paying a lot more attention to financial matters in Nashville. You have land deals. You have tax incentives. A good example is the Opryland Private Water Park has gotten a huge amount of attention, even though it seems that was finalized more than a year ago. Do you agree that the average person is starting to pay more attention, and why? Well, 
Well, because we ran out of money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so clearly, uh, people are engaged on the subject of how could we run out of money at what should be the biggest boom time of all time for this city or any other city. Employment is hovering just over 2%. Property values have increased more than any other city in America, and yet we're clearly out of money. So is our business model wrong as a city? I mean, what would life be like if we were, in fact, in a recession? It would be really brutal. Or are we really just not uh, – or the money that we're collecting isn't going to the wrong places? So the that, I think, has gotten – renewed emphasis on how are we spending our money and who is getting the money and who is benefiting from growth. Because a lot of people are not really feeling like they're benefiting from growth. Growth is um, property taxes are going up unless you're in Belmede or Forest Hills, which are the two areas where property taxes went down. Uh, it is a much more expensive city to live in, particularly with housing costs. Incomes have not increased as much as costs have in the city. So you're creating a displacement that a lot of people are feeling like they're just priced out of Nashville, and that's not the city that we want to be. And how is that happening in our biggest boom time? So who got the money? And so I think all these deals and incentive deals cover a wide variety of um, what, what they are. I mean, I mean, there are at least seven different ways of metro funding incentives, and there are really more than that. Um, and some are more appropriate than less appropriate. But it, but going back to the question about the water park at Opryland, if when that was passed, people had said, "Look, you're not going to have the money to pay for the AP fee." for high school seniors to take AP tests within a year, I don't think you would have had that vote pass. Um, hindsight's twenty twenty. you think? Well, hindsight is twenty twenty, but also it's a warning sign for all kinds of concerns about how we do business, how should we do business, why were we so unaware, how did we miss the mark on, on this? The push to get an MLS team has been huge and contentious, and the 10 acres proposed for private development has attracted the most criticism. What's your position on the soccer stadium deal? Well, I'm, I'm, one, of the, I'm one of the people that voted have voted against it. Not um, Again, people say right city, wrong location, and I think that's probably exactly right. So uh, the soccer stadium, and just let me spend a moment for your listeners here, is challenged on a couple of different levels. One is this soccer, the fairgrounds are the subject of a charter provision passed by the voters that most people don't realize that fundamentally protects the current activities at the fairgrounds and then requires 27 votes to demolish any of the buildings, particularly associated with the current activities. That combined with there should be a legal process for how you deal with public property in Nashville confronting the 10 acres being given away, that the fairgrounds is being displaced. What is currently at the fairgrounds is going to be literally given at a no-cost 99-year lease to the team. Seems awfully contradictory, to at least to the spirit of the charter. And then how you deal with property, any property, appropriately that's quite valuable, and in this case, for more than 100 years has been the site of the fairgrounds and is currently the most visited place in Nashville. 
You've got a million six hundred thousand visitors a year there. So everybody wants to pretend that it's blighted or neglected. The facilities aren't great, but it's sure getting a lot of traffic. Um, so ultimately, this will only be solved by doing the right thing. What is the right thing? Well, the right thing is there needed to have been some study, background, analysis, or justification for where Metro is going to build a quarter of a billion dollar stadium. But the, the lure of free land at this location probably has created a bad location choice. And to illustrate that, the, the parking numbers already at the fairgrounds, nobody really calculated them before they came up with this plan. But the 10 acres is going to require thousands of parking places for the development there. Um, the stadium is going to require 10,000 parking spaces. Um, the fair, now that we've completely disregarded, is going to require several thousand parking spaces. You're not going to be able to stage multiple events at the same time. And you're really talking about creating a 12, 13, 15,000 parking space facility to, to be there. Really, it needed to have been located in a way that was connected to the tourist um, space downtown. The same way that First Tennessee Park has now added to our downtown set of jewels, we have a difficult strategic problem in Nashville, which is you've got a 15 million person tourist economy. You're going to have to make investments to keep that vibrant and fresh. This would have been a natural additional jewel to complement the hospitality business that is there and burgeoning. Uh, but now this is a little bit too far, and then to get it there, you're demolishing what was a historic, again, the most visited site in Nashville. Um, so I'm, I, I have no basis for saying this, but the right thing to do is to relocate the stadium where it should have been. And the fact that this could have gotten so far along with no study whatsoever about where it should be. Now, anecdotally, I'll just say... Um, the team confirms they were never given a choice. They were told it's going to be here at the fairgrounds. Um, Do you think they should have a say? Well, absolutely that they should have a say. MLS, anecdotally, did not like the fairgrounds choice, and that's why the 10 acres is there. Well, what if we – because MLS and the team, I think, is like this is a somewhat unusual site for a quarter of a billion dollar stadium out here, much less we're going to be regretful about displacing the historic uses at the fairgrounds. Well, what if we gave the rest of the site away to you and you brought development there? Well, okay, <laughs> right, you know, well um, the bad location is requiring the gift of the 10 acres. And then the gift, the value of the gift of the 10 acres should have remained at the fairgrounds and the fair board. You know, and if anything, you, they should continue to be the owners of that land and not Metro. And they should be making the upside of the value added from the stadium. So we put in a quarter of a billion dollar improvement. And now the team is going to make all the upside from the development around the improvement that the taxpayer is paying for. Well, at least that value should have gone to the fair board and the fairgrounds. But again, this is part of uh, a lot of stories in the last couple of years, complex financial engineering, where at the end of it is a prominent local private party benefiting from it. And in this case, I don't know that it's the financiers, but it is... Um, it is another private group. And Metro 
had a fabulous balance sheet with lots of assets. And in the case of the last five years, a lot of those are now gone. I mean, we can go over those one by one and kind of get to the story of how each one of them disappeared. But you, the city, the taxpayer, the citizen, the regular person in Nashville has far fewer assets downtown that they that they own than they used to have. You've been a voice of opposition to several deals over the past few months, past few years, Cloud Hill development plants at Fort Negley, the 10 acres proposed for private development tied to the soccer stadium, the incentive package for uh, companies like Lifeway. What has led you to be an almost universally uh, uh, opposed to cons- consistent, <laughs> consistently well, opposed to these well, kinds I, of deals. I try not. I mean, uh, I have been for some. There are allowable incentives, for example, and mostly that's about infrastructure that everybody can use. There should be some principles behind incentives. There should be lots of beneficiaries. They should be permanently valuable. They should be available to everybody. Um, there are also incentives that raise wages and skills. Because fundamentally, Metro is in the business of incentivizing buildings. That's what we have. We have the property tax, and we own property. So we incentivize buildings. And we rely on trickle-down to trickle-down to actual people. But actually, um, that doesn't work very well. Landlords are very good at retaining those benefits to have super profitable buildings. And the mission of the city, fundamentally, is to get people making $10 an hour to go to $20 an hour. And that's the sweet spot, and that's what our incentives should be doing. We have a uh, antique and outmoded view of incentives, which takes a kind of 1960s, 1970s view of the world and says, look, there's blighted industrial, formerly industrial land that has no value at all and is not paying any property taxes. And so we're going to give you incentives of any property tax money coming back into the project. Well, Sure, okay, that's a very 1970 view of America. But it's contradicted by the reality on the ground. All this land now around Nashville is worth more than a million dollars an acre. So it's not the problem of how you use incentives is how you get value to people, not to the buildings themselves. And the problem is not that the land is valueless and you're trying to create value. You're trying to take very valuable land and enhance people's lives out of it. So the individual beneficiary from any incentive deal always should be pretty profoundly questioned. The way we do incentives is there's a lot of questioning. People may not know this. We're really not allowed to know what the state is giving. Isn't that weird? Why would we not know what the state is giving? Because the state often gives a lot, and then we're asked for something too. Why is that? Why is that? Well, because the game is rigged, you know. And um, and what we end up giving often, I mean, in the case of TIF loans and property tax reductions, that can be pretty big. But this $500 a job program, which is only worth a few million dollars, basically that is just tip money for the lobbyists who are helping making that happen. So that's not going to be fundamental. I mean, when you sit down in the council and you bring up the question of incentives, people immediately say, well, of course we have a standard of but for. They would not come here but for this. But this is a standard we never apply, right? You know, all of these people who've gotten this money would 
It's not about the few hundred thousand dollars a year that this has all of a sudden swung the scales and that's why they're locating to Nashville. The few hundred thousand dollars a year pretty much is just going to go to make the lobbying profit line, profit and loss line, look a little bit better for the claimant. Um, and you have a problem always that politics is a terrible way of allocating these things, which is kind of the host committee problem. So you – and what's the host committee problem? Is that everybody who runs for office needs a host committee at their fundraiser. So who's going to show up and be on your host committee if you haven't done anything for them? So here's a way of doing something for them. And, and But it's just so small that you, and then you think, well, it can't be that relevant. And then you get to a budget crisis like in June and you realize that every million dollars would have been extremely important in funding people's needs. But ultimately – it's a revelatory moment to realize that what Metro incentivizes are buildings. And our problem is not getting more development anymore. It's not turning blighted land into being worth something. It's how you're using extremely valuable land to, in effect, pay for the cost of growth. Growth does not seem to be paying for itself. Well, then who should be paying for that growth, right? Okay, you know, and why should you be paying for the growth when probably that growth is reducing your quality of life a little bit? Certainly, it's going to be increasing your taxes and the frustrations of modern life. So redirecting that and making growth, in fact, pay for itself is got to be a primary mission of the council. And so ultimately, yes, there is a consistency to me opposing these deals, but there's a method to that too, that that unless you're getting growth to pay for itself, you're really doing a harm to everybody else in the county. I want to step back in the time machine a little bit. Let's go back to 2003, 2004. Have you ever seen the movie Love Actually? Yes. There's a part yeah. right at the I beginning. So. Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant, okay. There's a part right in the beginning. They're in Heathrow Airport, and the voiceover goes, if you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling love actually is all around. I feel the same way about TIFF in okay. Nashville. Right. It is everywhere, even if you may not know what TIFF is. It actually surrounds us everywhere you go in right. Nashville. What is an example of a metro using TIFF well, and then conversely, Metro using TIFF poorly? Well, um, uh, there's an old saying in real estate. Um, tell me the year that you made the deal, and I'll tell you if it was a good deal or not. Probably with TIFF, you would use the same application. Um, that in all incentives, there's another metric that is very interesting, that if it's the first of anything, then that's fine. If it's the first building in a new area, then that maybe is the seed that's going to change that area. If it's the first type of employment, fine, then maybe other companies in the same field will come. Once you get out of the planting the seed business, though, then that becomes a problem. And as our TIF program was created out of, we talked about this earlier, this 1960s, 1970s view of changing blighted industrial property into more useful city property, most of the earlier deals have some justification for that. But once the boom happened and property values became so valuable, then really it's just a subsidy for something that's pretty good already going on out there. 
Um, so there's a case, the old convention center site, downtown, six and a half acres, the most valuable block in the southeast, it was called, by Rich Riebling, the chief operating officer of the city. Worth, you know, some people in the hospitality industry would say it's worth $150 million dollars maybe as much as $200 million. The tax assessors think view is 80 or $90 million. Certainly we sold it for $5 million. And then we gave a $25 million TIF loan to the buyers. So they closed $20 million to the good, right, on our incredibly valuable block that could have been green space, could have been a lot of things. Why would we do that? Why would we do that? So any TIF loan made after land has become extremely valuable is is going to raise a question that the whole methodology of the program is wrong. And there's no, you know, there's something that we do not do in Nashville on anything, which is cost-benefit analysis. You know, we are kind of stuck in an antique view of government that you don't do that basic return. And what happens to a TIF loan is all the future property tax revenues for a period of time, are really going to go to repay that loan. So the city is going to have the cost associated with the additional development. So if 100 people move there, you're going to have the cost of services for those extra 100 people. But you're not going to have the property taxes from those 100 people coming back to the city. They're going to come back to the landlord. So that's how little bit by little bit this problem of growth not paying for itself becomes really profound. So... Good use, bad use. Good use, bad use is if it's back when Nashville, and Nashville had a difficult time in the mid-90s. A lot of our jobs were changing. Uh, The banking industry was being consolidated. The life insurance industry was being consolidated. I think there was a real question about downtown in the 1990s. So good tiff, I think you go back to the origin of the program, which is, is this a blighted area? Right? Is this a blighted area? Are we going to need every tool possible to keep downtown alive? And then a decade or 15 years later, we've clearly moved beyond that. And so when you're giving a TIF loan just so that people can average down the value of their property, because we got the TIF loan because the property is just so valuable, we couldn't buy it without it. Well, that's that's just a different that's just a different problem. It should not be the citizen's responsibility to cover the costs of people overpaying for property. What comes to mind to me, kind of like we were talking before, are iconic buildings in Nashville where Metro relied on TIFF. I believe the Ryman in the late 90s relied on TIFF. Of course, the Batman building relied on TIFF. Were those good uses? Well, in just like we were saying, in a Nashville of the 1990s, uh, I think you can come back and say that may have been a useful tool. But, Today, would but you agree with it? No. No. I mean, you look at the Rolling Mill Hill site, the site is worth, you know, $10 million anyway. It's going to be a lovely building in it. We're um, putting in, I think, close to $8 million as a TIF loan so that we can have another office space down, building downtown. And people goes, well, this is a very nice project. It's going to have some green space. Well, we owned it. It could have all been green space, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And meanwhile, the property tax collections for the city are not going to come back to the city, and yet you're going to have additional costs associated with this. Um, so I think there have to be, like the real estate 
business itself, you have to be aware of what year you're in and is this a tool that you really need. But once it gets started, um, it's hard to stop. You have lobbyists. Um, you have claimants. The council has 40 people, which is pretty disorganized. You're going to have any mayor's office that's going to want to get ahead of any parade and, and cut some ribbons. How did your opposition to the transit plan fit into your broader opposition of giveaways? Um, well, the, the transit plan, transit plan is a, is a difficult moment in Nashville's history. You know, we should have had a better plan to sell. And in the end, the referendum was a bit of the emperor's new clothes moment for the city. And the question is, how did you get so far along before realizing, wow, you know, this isn't this isn't really probably the right plan. There, were, there had been no data to support a choice about the long-term expense of light rail. And particularly while transit is going through a huge technology transition in any case, and then you had to come up with the tunnel, which was kind of a magic bean solution to make it all work at a vast cost. And so how did we get that far? And Part of that is that Nashville has a very top-down government, so any initiative by any mayor is really going to get a very long way. You also – that there, the modern political machine in a city has a lot to do with PR and lobbying firms and voter contact. You don't have ward healers anymore, but you have PR firms engendering that kind of uh, contact. And then Nashville has a sort of um, a tricky internal bit of methodology or that kind of values deal-making. The great mayors of the past have done deals. So then what's the great deal that you're going to do? Can you top that? But not every deal is a good deal. And in the end, this was a re-election campaign um, sort of pretending to be a transit plan. So that – forced a whole lot of things to happen that are probably unfortunate. Part of the budget crisis is based that while the transit plan was alive, no one was allowed to speak honestly about the, where the revenues were headed in the city and the budget crisis that was going to happen. I mean, it's kind of amazing that up to May 1st, the transit referendum, there's really not that much conversation about that. And then two weeks later, oh my gosh, in the end we have no money because you're not going to want to do anything. You're, you're, you're running the reelect campaign. And ultimately what's learned is too much politics in policy is a is, is a concerning thing. Um, you have an environment of not that much appropriate assessment of information. And then there was also the willingness to have misleading financial information. So this is, will turn you back just a few weeks in t- time. This was not going to cost 17 cents a day. A uh, hundred people do not move into Nashville every day. Uh, there was billions of dollars of debt involved in this. So the, the, in the referendum language itself, it was inappropriate. So you see this kind of top-down, cram-down of a policy position that um, relies on kind of bullying people as opposed to embracing their, you know, their separate views. I mean, ultimately – 
It was not a false finding, the referendum. The people that voted for it were in exactly the districts that would have benefited from it. But in fact, surprisingly few people were going to have any benefits from that transit plan. So people voted their pocketbooks. It's not inappropriate. So it just required the plan to have been citizen-based and not private lobbying beneficiary-based. Okay. So unless you're a real estate developer who had an apartment house on a transit corridor, there was not that much reason for you to be for this, but they sure had a lot of reasons to be for this. Um, So the solution with all of this is sunshine and democracy. Considering you were the chair of budget and finance last year, what more could you have done to call attention to Metro's financial situation? You know, you've been uh, calling attention to rising debt service obligations and giveaways, but weren't you yeah. concerned when former Mayor Barry's proposed budget didn't call for a property tax rate adjustment? Well, um, yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, first, first of all, you're really not even in the great need. You're not passing a property tax increase in the city if the mayor says you don't need it. Right. That's very hard to do if the mayor says you don't need it. Right. That's But you believed otherwise. Well, last year, well, I, I don't believe that we should have it right now because we can go talk about really how growth should be paying for itself and growth should be contributing more to financing the government. And until we iron out that problem, right, it's really not fair to have the taxpayer pay more money because we're not willing to get the money out of the people benefiting from growth. And we can come into specific cases. But if you go back to June of 2017, uh, once again, it's um, I'm going to lead you into this sort of medieval metro budgeting (laughs) discussion. The weird thing about the budget process in June of 17 is that you are appropriating money that's not going to come in for the next 15 months. Okay, so you are appropriating money at the beginning of the fiscal year. You're not going to know until February whether the property tax money came in or not. And actually, all the, pro- the all the revenues don't really come in until the end of August of the next year. So if the charter writers had really been doing us a favor, you would have geared the budget process to actually the property tax collection process, right? That in a different metro world, you would budget on March the 1st with the money that had come in in the end of February from the property tax collections. And you would have known exactly what you would have had. So what happened is that you had a pretty substantial revenue miss in in June of 17 about the next year. And then there was no super desire. I mean, there was some effort, and there are a lot of honest people in finance who are certainly writhing on this subject, That you, but you are not really alerting people to the size of the problem because the transit referendum was happening on May the 1st. So yeah, there's a lot of uncomfortability going on, but nobody's really sitting down and going, oh my gosh, it's an incredible crisis because we're not getting the money that we thought that we were going to have. Now, the revenue cycle is a complexity that should be addressed somehow with sort of a systematic rearrangement of the timetables of the budget. Another thing that in the charter is the person who's solely responsible for the revenue estimate is the finance director themselves. The council cannot change it. You can ask about it. You can wring your hands over it. But if the revenue director and the charter says, this is the revenue that you have to spend, that's the revenue that you have to spend. And what budget and finance basically does is sign off 
on the mayor's spending plan. And it will reallocate priorities in the spending plan. Now, when my year as budget and finance chairman, um, Mayor Briley, Vice Mayor Briley, was kind enough to appoint me to do that. My role, which was pretty revolutionary, was not to be the floor leader for the administration's budget. Historically, that is the role of the budget and finance chairman, is to be the floor leader for the administration's budget, but to try to be independent. And we made kind of 20 times the level of changes in the spending decisions. But by charter, we're not able to come back and say, hey, we don't believe your revenue estimates because there's only one person who can come up with a revenue estimate. And at the time, it seemed um, there had been use of the general fund of the reserves to pay for previous budget years. The previous years had dipped into those for $70 million, and they had been replenished. So part of the falling off of the revenue was that those funds were not being replenished in the last year the way that they had been in the previous three years. Now, that's a, that is a, you know, that's a deep and a technical question for that. But ultimately, what should happen is a reorganization of the fiscal year calendar so that you're not trying to appropriate money that you're not receiving for 15 months out. Uh, another realignment on this is every time that there's a property reassessment year, that weirdly the greater the value increase, and of course we were unprecedented going up at 37%, the greater you need to reserve against appeals. Because now all of a sudden everybody in the city has a strong motivation to appeal and will hire excellent lawyers and appraisers to come in and conflict with that because there's literally millions of dollars at stake. Can you blame them? You can't blame them. You just have to prepare for it. Sure. That every 10% of additional property tax increase, really, you're going to have to reserve a higher amount when you make your forecast going forward. Earlier, this is all unprecedented territory. Nobody has had a 37% average property increase Uh, I mean, perhaps some parts of Arizona have in the 70s and the 80s, but not in Tennessee. Earlier, you spoke of sunshine and its importance. And in January, the council passed the Do Better bill, which uh, I viewed as a quasi-transparency bill that required companies to disclose information about how many residents they were going to hire, the kinds of wages they were going to offer, uh, safety violations even. But it seems when Alliance Bernstein recently announced their relocation to Nashville, we learned number of employees and average pay, but not so much about the incentive package offered to lure them to come to Nashville. Did the Do Better bill go far enough? No, there's much more to be done. You know, the Do Better bill uh, and Anthony Davis, the sponsor of it, great work, great start. I applaud transparency. I wheel and deal in it. it What's amazing is that it got so far without any of this, that we were really handing out money without any of these kind of basic information protections. But I'll I'll tell you something even more remarkable. We were talking about the TIF loans. Uh, In a recent audit of the TIF loan process, there was an effort to go back and go, it was a half a billion dollar program over the last generation. So look at the half billion dollars. Did we get what we wanted to get out of it? So here was the loan. What was the purpose for the loan being given? What happened? It's a half a billion dollar program. We can't tell because nobody saved the paperwork. Really, there was no paperwork. So you had a half billion dollar TIF program 
with no residual paperwork, at least prior to, say, 2014 or 2015. They're trying to be better about that now. So the level of accountability in government is so much less than what people think. How do you improve transparency around incentives? How do you work on that? Because it seems this bill was intended to help that and assist in that well, you come mission. Back, you, you come back and you demand more. Now, the problem is, even in the Do Better bill, there was some pushback of, why do we have to? This is so hard. The Just the basic inertia of government. And ultimately, it's only going to be solved by people going, hey, this is public money. You have to have a higher level of accountability to it. But yeah, yeah, that's the shocking thing is that none of this existed. Even clawbacks, which, you know, i.e., if somebody doesn't fulfill their obligation under the receipt of some of these incentives, then the metro can come back and claw that back. Even that is a somewhat much contested notion. You know, well, then people won't do it if they think that they will be responsible if they didn't do it. <laughs> right, right. It's crazy. Uh, during the, this year's budget debate, you vied for the formation of a sort of blue ribbon commission that would investigate, if you will, ways to cut metro spending. Right. What did you have in mind? Well, there are success stories in government. There's one in Atlanta that has happened, and um, they were very successful. There's actually a Harvard School of Government case study on this, which really applauds it. And they got private sector, people from the government, people from unions to work together. Now, they had an incentive that they had some infrastructure projects that needed to be funded, and so they knew that any money that they saved, they could go to funding these infrastructure projects. We equally have an incentive that any money that we can save can, in fact, go to employee and teacher pay, which we have not fulfilled our obligation in trying to keep those pay amounts up. Uh, but ultimately, the Blue Ribbon Commission is set up for a couple of things. One is you get to the budget season, you get to May. This is part of having been the chairman of this. And you're looking for savings and everybody goes, well, you can't possibly do this right now, right? If you wanted that kind of saving on, say, some HR benefit plan or travel plan or third-party contracting plan, that would take months of study to do this. Okay, let's get started. Let's get started now and put the ideas on the table. Not all the ideas will be good, but you at least put them on the table. So really you're getting ready for next year. And then also in the Blue Ribbon Plan is that there's a lot of money sitting around in Nashville, the Music City Center, for example. I mean, I have its balance sheet right here. I think it has $130 million worth of cash because it's really had twice the tax collection that was forecast than it was built. In part, people don't know this, but there's a pretty large tourist development area, and it gets all the sales tax money spent in that area goes to the Music City Center, not to Metro. So Metro really, by a mistake, by having too large a tourist development zone center, has allowed tax revenue, and it's all good news. I mean, the Music City Center gets half of all the hotel taxes collected in the entire county, okay? And then of the six cents, it gets 3%. 2% goes to the Visitors and Tourism Board. The city itself only gets 1% of the tourist taxes. So instead of tax collections being on the order of 40 to $50 million this year, as was 
forecast in the plan, it's over $100 million. So it has a $50 million cash surplus every year and is pooling up in this cash. So part of the work of the Blue Ribbon Commission is going to be studying the revenue sources that really belong to the taxpayers in the county. They really belong to the citizens. And is it just sitting there pooling up in cash in a building that, in fact, they're going to end up spending to reinforce that building's position? They've already done that. They're going to build parking lots on other people's property, and they're going to buy some property. But really, do they have to engage back with the city and our increased costs from growth and use some of that revenue to cover those increased costs for growth? But it's not going to be solvable in one council meeting or in one session. It's only going to be solvable by having this sort of continuous engagement for the whole year going ahead. If that was solved in one council meeting, that would be a very, very long meeting. Um, well, we've, we've had some long meetings, but we've never been that productive. <laughs> uh, back to the topic of giveaways, kind of wrapping up here. Do you blame the trend of giveaways on certain actors, or is this the general lack of oversight? Can well, someone be blamed? Can somebody be blamed? Um, well, let me, instead of blaming a particular set of actors, let's Let's just blame a mentality that was allowed to carry on too long. And we, we've gone back to this and talked about a lot of the incentive programs and their origin was in a very different city. And so there was a time in Nashville that was much more defensible that all development is good development and we need any deal that we can get. But that time was a fairly long period of time ago. So the challenges of the city are com- are very different now. Our problem is we've got a lot of development. We've got a lot of cranes. We have to deal with the reality as every other super regional city in, this, in the country does. There, it's all boom times for all these cities. If you're a state capital and an education center and a healthcare center, you are doing well, at least as well as we are, and in some cases maybe even better. How are you going to create the quality of life for the people in that environment is the question. And so that's why incentives for landlords to do particular projects is really kind of old-fashioned. And the incentives to create a better community, green space, training, infrastructure, that's not limited to a single beneficiary has to be the future. The trick is to go from being an it city to being a great city. And that is going to require a different set of policy choices if you're doing that and not rewarding claimants who cleverly positioned themselves between kind of the city and where it has to go. We're not all going to be owning bars on Lower Broadway. And those of us who do not, right, need to benefit somehow in the evolution of the city too because you do give up a lot with a much bigger city. It's more difficult to get around and costs are completely different than they were a few years ago. Our incentive program is really for the 1%. It's for people that own buildings, that have real estate projects, right? And so the question is, how do you go beyond that to actually benefiting people? The challenges of income inequality and affordable housing are very great. And that's not, all these programs were not really designed with that in mind. They were designed to deal with the problem of 1970 as we've got some old factories here that have moved, you know, they probably moved to Mexico first and now they've gone to China. We've got some old factories here and we used to have a municipal asset here. Don't any longer, how do we get that back? 
Now we're several generations removed from that. And in fact, any old factory building that you had anywhere near downtown would be gold, right? We're sitting in one right now. And so that's just a different development and growth challenge. What do you say to people who say that incentives helped build Nashville, put it on the map, and attracted major businesses that formed the foundation of what the it city is today? Is it a what came first, chicken or the egg debate? I think you unbundle that. And again, I think you go back to tell me the era that you're talking about an incentive for a particular building. I mean, again, the track record of state capitals that are education hubs that have health care, everybody is successful. Now, it is very easy for the business community to get people to bid against themselves. But Portland or Austin or Madison or Richmond, they're all very successful, too. You know, you can't prove a negative. I can't prove definitively that it didn't contribute. Fine. That's now an academic debate. The real debate going forward is, is that program helping us having a better city today with the new challenges that we have? So, yeah, you can say it helped make us there. Well, fine. They got, you know, they were handed out and we are where we are. Are any future incentives going to create a better city? Would you prefer that we live in a post-incentive world today in Nashville? Well, again, if it's based on infrastructure and on training, then I think that's redirecting it to where uh, that it's not special claimants, that there are lots of beneficiaries, it's of permanent value, you're building a city. Growth in America is based on infrastructure and the skill set of the people in the city. The bigger problem is have we grown wings to pick up the air underneath this change to the digital economy, to float that? Because for the rest of the century, that's what's going to be changing the economy. Are we prepared to take advantage of that? And if there's a problem in the city, it's not attracting development. It's do we have the IT skill set in the population to take advantage of the major trend in the rest of the century. What are we doing about that? So if you connected our discretionary spending in that direction, okay, that makes a lot of strategic sense. There is always a level of fanfare and excitement when we find out that a company may be coming to Nashville. It could mean wages. It could mean jobs. There is uh, some pomp and circumstance to it. But what populations are we overlooking or forgetting in light of those announcements? Well, you're uh, almost all the population you're forgetting. What do they look like? Who are they? Because well, um, we always got to bring it back to people. Well, you can just you can go through this whole series of council districts. I mean, I particularly think of Ed Kendall's district, which is North Nashville. I mean, um, the property values there have changed dramatically. Uh, people are being gentrified out of Nashville. The people who are there um, are not as prepared to succeed in the digital economy as you would want them to be, and they're being displaced and replaced by people who are. And people coming here, we seem cheap compared to Los Angeles and New York, but to us, it's it's quite expensive. Growth is a two-edged sword. And one of the requirements of growth is to be fair to the people who are here. And that means having an education system. And, I mean, one of my longstanding ideas is to have a, 
a sort of skills superintendent for the rest of us. For everybody who's not in high school or in a formal schooling program, how do you go get retooled for skills to help you succeed in the digital economy? And that's where the future needs to be for all these people who are being dis- displaced. But, I mean, for rents to go from four or $500 a month now to fifteen or $1,600 a month is a shocking hardship that the growth in the city, the change in property values, is imposing on our own people. Is there anything else that you would like to share or that we should know? Well, I just I have a lot of belief that we can retool the government into being more effective on the needs at hand and to get out of kind of this level of sort of small-minded information management, of kind of machine, top-down machine politics to get people to go along, right, as opposed to a different era of being just very forthright about how we should analyze. Ultimately, when you're in office, you have priorities and you want to get funding for things that you believe in. But equally, you have to fear a little bit people that want the money for stuff that's not as worthy because money is finite and stuff that I money that I can't get for teachers, somebody else may be getting for something else that is not as worthy. And so you're just going to have to um, be prepared to find that set of priorities. It's so much about money um, that that's all that you really have. Um, the metro budget is not very large, really, $2.2 billion. Half of it goes to education, almost half of it. We've had a long conversation about in- incentives in a way here. People forget that half of the property taxes given over to TIF really comes from education, right? That if you didn't give that TIF money, schools would have all those property taxes that would have been collected, that's half of those property taxes. So there's a weird line item in every school budget, and this year it's about $10 million of money that would have gone to the school system. Is it a stretch to say that incentives impact public school funding? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a formal line item in the budget of the TIF money give back that the school system has to forego because otherwise, without the TIF, you would have had it. But people always forget Oh, and this is my sort of awkward point about you have to keep the wrong hands out of your pocket. Equally, people go, oh, of course, we're for development. But then you would never sit there and go, well, I'm not for development if half of the money comes from the school system, (laughs) right? But that's the kind of fact that people need to know. Thank you so much, Councilman. Thank you.